0: I want to continue with our um, uh, sermonettes. Yes, sermonettes. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about three different things. Three things, uh, a little bit about husband and wife. um, And that's part of what I like about the sermonettes. You can uh, encourage in a certain area often. You don't have to go long with it. It's just a sermonette. It could be just a few minutes. um, Or it could be a lot of minutes. (laughs) But... Thankfully, I don't go a lot of minutes with everything. <laughs> uh, and then the second part, we're going to talk about um, abstaining from fleshly lusts and, and some of the, the consequences of that and so on and so forth. And then and we're going to talk about anger uh, because I have discovered that how much we have misunderstood the idea of anger, and we have excused anger in so many ways when the Scriptures, for the most part, not 100%, but for the most part, forbid against anger. Uh, we and have, We have actually uh, t- thought it the other way. Uh, anger is so good, get off your chest, blah, 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 blah. So anyways, but first, first let me talk a little bit about uh, about uh, husband and wife uh, 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 relationships. Um, th- the first thing that I want to say is that um, when it says in Ephesians 5.25, Paul writing, saying, a husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Yes? Then this is this involves a ton of stuff. Volumes could be written on just that verse because yes, because how what does it mean for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church? So, we're not going to we're not going to do 10,000 reasons this morning. We're just going to pick one. There is 10,000 reasons. I mean, uh so many things that is involved in the way Christ loves his church, as you well know. You probably know a few hundred reasons, but there's 10,000 reasons um, uh, why, how Jesus loves his church. We're going to pick one of those this morning, and, and we're going to say that part of how a husband is supposed to love his wife is that he should protect her in every way. Protect her. Protect your wife in every way. You are her, your job description is to protect her. You are her protector in every way. And so in every way means physically you are supposed to protect her. Yes? That is probably the easy one. If somebody wants to shoot your wife, you'll step in front of her, take the bullet. Yeah, wonderful. You're the hero. Even... Unless you're on crack, every husband would do that for his wife. Uh, Take the bullet. Uh, And then, you know, you are a hero. You get on television, you get in the newspaper, on the radio probably. You get many interviews. No, the interviews are over because you're dead now, okay? (laughs) So when Jesus says that there is no greater love than he, than a man laid on his life for his friend, okay, What he means by that is that, yes, you'll take the bullet, but that is not what he's talking about, per se. It is included in what he's talking about, but he's talking about in a much greater way than that. Because if you're taking the bullet for your wife, you can lay down your life for her only one time, (laughs) and it's over. But what he's meaning is that in a a day-by-day way, in the mundane things of life, you're not going to be on television you're not going to be in the, on the radio. You're not going to be in the newspaper. Nobody else sees it. But the Lord and the angels and your wife, Amen. they see it. And yet you lay down your life for her in a protection sort of a way. So protecting in a physical way is part of the deal. But also protecting in a spiritual way. Some of you maybe read scripture together. Maybe the husband shares with the wife what he has discovered in the scriptures. And and, and they talk back and forth a little bit, discuss it. Uh, Obviously, you pray for your wife exceedingly, uh, abundantly above, uh, and and so on and so forth. And and spiritually speaking, and you're walking in a way that makes the atmosphere in the home such that the wife can also fulfill her part of the bargain before the Lord. Right? And and we're not going to talk about submission this morning. But submission is one of the other things that is misused and misappropriated and misrepresented in the Scriptures. As if submission was an inferior position. Far be from it. So I'm talking about submission anyways because since I mentioned the word, let me talk a little bit about it. So that uh, uh, because... We have misunderstood it. We, we have thought that this is an inferior situation, submitting. submitting. But, you know, in the Scriptures, you find that when Paul talks about being, you know, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And then right after that comes the idea of submit one to another. And shortly after that comes, "Wife, submit yourself to your own husband. Submission is... What we have been hearing about submission is that it is an inferior position. It is like you are not as uh, spiritual as the other person, so therefore you have to submit to them. You are not as educated as the other person, so therefore you have to submit to them. You are not as schooled as they are. You are not as formidable as they are. Nothing is further from the truth. Amen. has nothing to do with that. And just say, Submit. So, in other words, let us, say, let us say we're doing a choir. Hey, by the way, let me say this before I forget. We didn't have a pianist this morning, and we didn't have the extra voice that we usually have, the three young women singing, and when you have something like a voice like that and a piano that's just a big, strong instrument, you miss that support, right? Ruben, you're, you're a musician, when a, pian- when a piano is missing, you miss that support. So they miss that support. But what I appreciate about these young people, they never whined one minute about it. They came and they did it and they let us in worship. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes. I appreciate that because, you know, we whine so readily. But here they are, young people. They give us a good example. They just come and they do it. Thank you. Uh, So back to the submission thing. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so uh, what got me on the music was, let us say that Edna is leading a worship team, right? I am Edna's pastor, yes, but I'm on that worship team. When it comes to the worship team, I get to submit to Edna. She is the leader of that worship team at that point, and I get to submit to her. Well, I know a little bit about music. So if there's an issue, Edna might get some maybe get my input on it because she's a good leader. So the people that are that are that are with you, you're gonna try to get their input because you wanna make the best decisions possible, right? Amen. Right? Correct? So so I give her input. But even though I'm the pastor, she doesn't have to go with my input. If she thinks that she has a better solution, that's what she goes. And I get to follow her. Amen. I get to submit to her. So submission to me is Quite the opposite of what we usually think. Because, you see, Jesus submitted to the Father and came to earth. And then it says in Philippians 2, 5, it says, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to describe how Jesus, being God, submitted to the Father and came to the earth in a human form. So the mind of Christ is a mind of submission. So when somebody says that you are spiritually uh, less apt because you are to submit to somebody else, is false. You might be, I say might, <laughs> very carefully choose my words, you might be spiritually more mature than that other person that you're supposed to follow. And you submit because you're more mature. Because unless you're mature, you don't know how to submit very well. You see, so, and then you have in in, 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 uh, uh, 1 Peter, the 3rd chapter, verse 7, I believe it is, it says, it speaks about a woman, a believing woman, that Peter asked her to be submissive to her husband, who was an unbeliever. So when a believer is asked to be submissive to an unbeliever, certainly the unbeliever is not more spiritual than the believer. Right? So here... Certainly, then the wife is more spiritual than the husband who is an unbeliever. And yes, she's asked to submit to him so that he might be one to Christ. So, the idea of submission being an inferior situation is false. With a little imagination, with a little imagination it is not true, but with a little imagination it might be true, (laughs) a lot of imagination. It is a superior position spiritually because the, the, the mind of submission is the mind of Christ. So, the husbands thought, oh, he's talking about a wife. That's good. He, he forgot about us. No, I'm coming back to the husbands now. So, husbands, you are supposed to protect that wife that God has entrusted in your care. Do you know what God has done to entrust another soul in your care? that you would care for her in such a way as Christ cares for the church. That's a huge privilege and responsibility. There's nothing small about that. And so we can't, we can't be casual about it. I tell young man, I say, hey, yeah, just yesterday I did a, 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 a wedding, and I told the young man, hey, one of the things that God has designed for you is to pro- protect this, your wife, to be here in just a few minutes. And you're going to mess up. And you'll be forgiven. But you cannot be casual about it, my friend. Amen. It is a great privilege and responsibility. So you get, to pre- you get to protect her, not only physically and spiritually. But where I find that Christian men mess up the most, is in the emotional aspect, because they talk to her as if she is a servant or a slave, or they talk down to her, belittle her, bemoan her, sarcasm, and the whole bit, to put her down in some form or fashion. Brothers and sisters, that is not protection. That is messing with her emotions, and, and, and worse. I'm just giving you the, 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 the easy stuff that sometimes the husband doing, but they, they, it goes deeper than that, and further than that, that they actually, in my opinion, abuse their wives emotionally, but they don't think they are. That makes it even worse because there's no correction unless another brother comes along and says, hey, I remember, and and I'm getting off this thing. This was supposed to be a sermon, a a little short because I have some other things to talk about. I remember going to a a conference with a brother. Sybil had dropped me off at his house. We were going to go in his car to... To the conference, and he was running a little bit late and in his opinion his wife was running a little bit late because I sat there waiting for him and all I heard let me put let me not exaggerate and you say just about all I heard was him griping to his wife why he was running so late hey be a man suck it up and you take the blame don't blame it on your wife. So I told him such. So when we were in the car, I told him, brother, I, can't, I am disappointed. I can't believe that you treated your wife like that while we were waiting and just blame her the whole thing. He says to me, brother, I love my wife. I just don't know how to do it. Well. We went to the conference, we sat in the conference, he and I were roommates, we talked all night about husband and wife relationships. Not that I have so much to share or to to, to teach, but if God wants you to teach somebody, he'll give you the will with all to to, to teach somebody. And we got to share, not in a condemning way, but just in an uplifting way for him to be also a caretaker and, and a protector of his wife and not belittling her in front of another brother while you are running late. I'm sorry. That's the part of the protection. <laughs> there's, there's much more to it, obviously. But we need to protect those treasures that God has entrusted into our care, brothers and sisters. And it is my deepest dream and desire that men from this church and other Christian men that we know, but I've only oversight over this, that we would be examples in the body of Christ of how a husband, should walk with his wife Amen. that was my sermon that on <laughs> it's been a wife relationships now we're going to talk about abstaining from fleshly lust so we, we look at uh, we look at 1 Peter 2 chapter two verses 9 and 10 and eleven because the emphasis is on eleven abstaining from fleshly lust that war against your soul but I want to show you first who you are in Christ. And on that basis, Peter is saying, hey, abstain from fleshly lust, my goodness. Look who you are. So let's look at it. So he says first, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, we, we're going to go to, yeah, verse 9. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praise of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Let's leave it right over here for just a little bit. Let's look at that just quickly. You are a chosen generation. God and the counsel of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have decided to choose you. You are a generation chosen by God. In his infinite wisdom, he has decided that, (laughs) wow, look at them. A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. What is a priest? A priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of man and who goes to man on behalf of God. Yes? A priest is not just somebody who goes to God on behalf of man, but he goes to, to man on behalf of God. So, we believe in the, the priesthood of the believer. That is to say, every believer, so if uh, uh, Andy is a believer, I can ask Andy, Andy, would you pray for me? <clears throat> would you, whatever the need might be, and then he can go to God on my behalf. Right? God speaks to him, and then he can come to me, a human being, on God's behalf. It goes in both directions. The priesthood of the believer. But not only are we a priesthood, we are a royal priesthood. We are priests of the kingly kind. I'm just trying to express to you who you are in Christ. A kingly priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A nation, you are. we are forming, all the believers are forming a nation together before God, and we are a holy nation set apart, set apart to God from unholiness or from sin. From sin to God, we are set apart. We are a set apart people that are set apart to God from sin. And he'll, he'll express that. In a little bit different way, in just a minute, he says, "A peculiar people. People, a peculiar people. You are. You have a different word in your translation. Anybody? Opposite. What does your translation say? A people. Yeah." A people of God's own possession. Any other? Huh? Special? Special. So a peculiar people, there is a sort of a a weirdness about you as God's people. Weird in the sense that you are not like normal. Like normal people in the world, they act a certain way. You as God's people, you act in a different way. One brother called me one time, he said, you're a weird person. I said, praise the Lord, thank you for that compliment. <laughs> I want to be different. I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be different. I want to be part of a peculiar people that are different in than in the, in the world is. Yes. You are a weirdo. Then you should show forward. Another translation says here, a people of his own. Now you are a different people. You are a people of his own. Is that what you says, uh, Nelda? Uh-huh. So that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you. Here, here it goes again. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, but But you are called to show forth the praises of him. That you would walk in such a way that your life that people would tend to praise God for your life. That people would see you walk, even if it's in your relationship with a a husband to a wife, or a wife to a husband, or a brother to a brother, or a sister to a sister, or whoever, that it would cause people to take note and praise God for you because of the way that you walk as a Christian. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, don't you people tell you sometimes, I praise God for you, the way you, know, you, you walk, the, the way you're faithful, the, 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 the way you have faith, the, the way you love your wife, the way you love your children, uh, whatever, whatever it might be. And because he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then verse 10 says this. So this is the kind of people that you are. That's who you are. Which in time past were not the people, but now are the people of God. You are not just the normal people; you are the people of God. This is who you are in Christ—the people of God, uh, who had not uh, which had not obtained mercy before you were saved, but now. So that's the opposite of before. It is not said said in the first phrase over there, but it's certainly understood because that's why it says, but now, as opposite to the previous phrase, but now have obtained mercy. You have obtained mercy. It's important to say that you have not uh, attained mercy as if you could earn it and you could do something for it. You have obtained it as a gift God has given it to you. Nothing you could do for it. Out of the goodness of his heart, he gave you mercy. He bestowed mercy upon you. As we should do as well to each other, uh, okay, that is the first part. on this basis, this is who you are, and he says, in verse eleven, he says, "Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul let 's just look at the, at the different phrases and different words uh, uh, to get, get a good understanding." Uh, Often the words dearly beloved are used as a greeting in a writing. If, if I write a letter to Joe, I might write, hey, dearly beloved brother. So as a greeting, right? But or when I, somebody speaks to a group of people and they could say dearly beloved, sort of as an address. But this is not just an address or a greeting. This here is specifically because here is verse Verse 11, in chapter 2, he's in the middle of his letter. He's not just writing the beginning of the letter, dearly beloved. It's not just a greeting, right? This is in the middle of the letter, and he says, dearly beloved. He specifically wants them to know how he loves them. I love you. This morning we talked in Sunday school about the necessity that if somebody is going to correct somebody else, if I'm going to correct Mark over here, Right? Mark won't receive from me unless I have loved him and he has been shown that I love him. And he's convinced that I love him. I might correct him before I show him that I love him. But he won't receive it as readily as when I have shown him that I love him. Then he will receive from me more readily. He may not if he's a little bit rebellious or he doesn't want to, you know. But If I have loved him, there's a better chance that he will will receive from me. So this is what I'm expressing to him, love. And Peter is saying, hey, I love you. I'm not saying this that I'm saying over here to scold you. I'm not finding fault with you. I'm saying these things because I dearly love you. You mean the world to me. And on that basis, I say to you, I beg you. I beseech you. I plead with you. If you are scolding him, he says, I'm telling you. No, he's not scolding him. He is pleading with them. He is begging them. Because of the danger that he knows that not abstaining from flesh, giving in to the flesh, entertaining the flesh, causes huge problems for believers. And he says to them, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Because strangers and pilgrims is what we are to this world over here. We don't belong over here. My son, Nate, signs his letters or his notes he signs with, just passing through. Just passing through. Because we are just passing through. We're here just for, for a, a little bit. Because God wants a witness and a testimony of himself here on the earth. If he didn't want that, he would save us and take us to heaven. We have no need to be here any longer. But he wants a testimony and a witness on the face of the earth of the goodness of the Lord. So he still leaves us here, leaves us here for a little bit as pilgrims and as strangers. And he says, I beg you, abstain from fleshly lust. What does abstain means? He says, Give it up. Stay away from it. Don't do it. Uh, 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 Forsake it. Let it go. Don't, I mean, fleshly lusts. He says abstain from them. Well, I'm familiar with that idea. Abstain from fleshly lusts. The, The entertainment of what your flesh wants, and you give in to it, so that the flesh feels good about it oh no. your spirit needs to feel good about it your flesh feels good about trash i'm just saying but let me not talk about your flesh i just talk about my flesh my flesh thinks i need to do all i can to be in the spirit Lest my flesh has its uh, its way with me. Whatever I can do to abstain from entertaining my flesh is what I must do. So I stay in the spirit. Because it says, if you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. How do I abstain from the flesh? Walking in the spirit. But Peter gives an instruction over here and a warning. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Don't give in to those fleshly lusts. And this part, I had never really thought about as hard as I did this week. Because giving in, those fleshly lusts, they war against your soul. It took me a step back. Oh, my gosh. Did I, did I read that right? That if I don't abstain, these fleshly lusts, they war against your soul. Now, when I started thinking about this, I'm thinking to myself, how ridiculous it is that we would give in to the fleshly lusts so that we can begin a war against ourselves (laughs) who starts a war against themselves so the other night we were together with a few people that had been in in, in the war and and some of this some of them had to deal with the scars of the war for years after the war I don't know Some some never recuperate thank God and Christ by the Spirit of the Lord, he, he, he has a way for us to escape that. Hallelujah. But, but, but what if you are just a young believer? You haven't been instructed. You don't know the ways of how you can get out of this bind of these effects that the war has on you. And it's all over the news, right? People that come out of the war, the divorce rate is sky high, you name it. They're struggling because of a war. And here you read that if you don't abstain from fleshly lust, you are actually starting a war against yourself. <laughs> so we're thinking, oh, a little bit of entertainment to the flesh. What can it hurt? My brothers and sisters, you're starting a war Against your flesh, your soul. Against your soul. I'm thinking to start a war against your flesh for some entertainment, that would be one thing. That's my flesh. I might be able to do it without an arm or whatever. But a war against my soul? The effect of which I may not have control over. I don't know how long this is going to be. I don't know where this is going to go. So my mind jumped to my young people. Also to, also to the, 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 the not-so-young people, but to, to the young people. My mind jumped because because in today's society, sex is no, no big deal. And I'm thinking... We are betraying our young people. We're telling them, hey, you know what? For you to give in to the flesh and to start a war against your soul, ah, don't worry about it. And we don't know where this war is going to take our young people. Think about it. sister, you're, you're kind and so you would never start this. But I can see where somebody starts a war against somebody else. But starting a war against yourself, <laughs> how insane is that? So this is what Peter, Peter is warning us about. He says, dearly beloved, and this is, you know, I talk to my young people because I love them and I want the very best for them. I don't want them to be in a war of their soul. Who was that for, for, for your sheep? I want them to be victorious in their soul. Amen. And not have been defeated. A war. And injured. <laughs> and the pain of the war. And how many years do I have to struggle with this? Well, maybe not for many years. If, if God is gracious. And, and if you know how to tap in on what God has for you. But nevertheless... War brings pain. Why? Why? So, here you have it, brothers and sisters. I love you. Dearly beloved. I'm not just saying, Dear Gracie, I'm writing this letter from Greece. And I just want to remind you. I say, Gracie, I love you like crazy. Do not give in when your flesh is telling. I don't care what the rest of the world says. Do not give in, sister. Because there is a war that you start in your soul that I don't know. You follow what I'm saying? You follow what I'm saying? You follow what I'm saying, brother? You follow what I'm saying? Thank you. I want to protect Peter is trying to protect the people of God, the people that he described in verses 9 and 10. Those people, he's trying to protect them and says, Hey, I love you like crazy. Don't give in to the flesh because you're starting a war against your soul. So my dear brothers and sisters, the the Christian life, Is really no secret and no mystery. There are mysteries, but the the Christian life is not one of those. There are mysteries in the doctrines and the teachings of God because we don't know everything about God. There's mysteries. But to walk on the earth like a Christian is not a mystery. If we walk by the flesh, we will reap from the flesh corruption rottenness, pain, unnecessary pain, you name it. But if we walk by the Spirit, you have this wonderful list of wonderful fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and so on and so forth. So then the question that I'm going to ask with Peter is, What do you want in your life? Do you want that wonderful list? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on and so forth. Or do you just want to go with eyes wide open against that and say, I want some rottenness for my life for a change. (laughs) You know, Sherry, what I want for my life a little bit? I want some rottenness. The problem is, my dear brothers and sisters, when I get rottenness in my life, usually I have an effect and an influence on other people's lives. Matter of fact, the the guy that just invited you to have sex, now his soul is at war with him. So we have influence. Uh, 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 My children, my wife, my brothers and sisters, my family, whoever it might be, the, the people I work with. Now, all of a sudden, I get their minds, their souls at war as well. (laughs) I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm not upset. I I, I just want to fervently warn you. Why get your soul at war? Yes. Question. Question. Christian men and women. Well, no, no, no. That is not exactly what Peter said. He is, he is specifically speaking to the, to the believers over here. Yes. But that is not to say that there is that uh, an unbeliever, his soul can be at war and then some more war and then some more war as well. Right. And so when it comes to Jesus, this is not saying in any way that you can lose your salvation. That is not what he's saying. He's saying over here, And I'm not saying that you're saying that. I'm just making clarify myself a little bit. He's not saying that you lose your salvation. He is saying that you will have a defeated life. You will have rottenness in your life for no reason. And there's so many people that basically invite rottenness in their life. And I'm thinking, why? Why? When you're inviting rottenness to yourself... It is not just yourself that it has rottenness. Your children, your, 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 your spouse, your, your parents, uh, your employees, whoever they may be. And, and this is the this is the thing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so it is not like if you're a believer that you're exempt from these things. No. He's speaking to the believers over here. Um, so You you sort of have to make up your mind a little bit. What do you want? And to know that if you want the victory in your life, God is on board with you. Okay. Now, (laughs) uh, how much time we have here. Okay. I'll get started and we'll see where it takes us. The next thing we talk about is anger. Anger. The reason why I'm intrigued by anger is not because anger is such a beautiful thing. It's an ugly thing. It's a rotten thing. It is because from my experience, limited as it is, I have limited experience, very limited experience. But because I don't circle around in just Baptist circles, I circle around in kingdom circles. You know, uh, uh, they, they, they don't have to be Baptist if they're, if they're a brother. I, I, I don't mind going to the church. I'm going to go to the service. I, I, I fellowship with them. We, we talk back and forth. Uh, it's no problem. But because I, I, I'm in wide, wider circles than this Baptist, I may have a, a, a little bit more experience than maybe a typical Baptist or, or whatever. I don't even know why, why I'm going to I'm just saying that my experience is limited, but yet I have experience with different kinds of groups of denominations and, and, and Christian beliefs. And what I, what I have heard, for the most part, no, 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 I should say it. What I have heard is excuses for anger rather than discouragement for anger. So let me explain some things, uh, and there are some questions that we need to answer. And I'm trying to go quick uh, so that we, we can advance a little bit. So uh, for the most part, the Scriptures... They forbid anger. They warn against anger. I use, choose my words carefully. For the most part, not 100%. And I'll explain. So there's some questions. What are we allowed to get angry about? There is some allowance there. Two, at what point are we, are we required to let go of anger? Thirdly, can I control it? Fourthly, who causes the anger? Fifthly, do I need treatment for anger? Sixthly, where does obedience come in? So, we look at Ephesians 4, 26, 27, 31, and 32 for, for, for starters. Um, and let me just say to you, there are three words in there are three words in, um, for anger in the, in the Greek. The first one is, I'll give you the first one, is, is orge. Orge, that is that one right away. Oh, thank you. Orge. Orge. That is an anger, an anger that is allowed in certain circumstances. It says there, be angry and sin not. So you are allowed for that anger, but it is not just any anger that you are allowed to be angry about, or any cause that you are allowed to be angry about. The anger that it's speaking over here, orgē, has to do with the things that God gets angry about. What does God get angry about? Huh? sin. Uh, 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 call it what murder, uh, lying, cheating, theft theory and so on and so forth so those are the ones that you are allowed to be angry about even even encouraged to be angry about but he says but sin not so you're angry about somebody committing murder it is not that you are that that precludes forgiveness not by any stretch but You may not even know know, know the person. you just be on the news. And the hope is that you might do something about it. But you're not going to do something about it and kill the other person who did the killing. Because now then you did the same thing. Then now you have sinned. He is saying, be angry, but sin not. Do something about it that is not sinful. Are you with me? Orge. Then there are, uh, uh, there's another word, uh, tumos. Tumors. that has to do with a bodily agitation of a feeling. You are upset. You are mad. But it's not about the things that God is mad about. You're just mad about somebody cutting you off in traffic. You know, I know some people. They are the nicest people. But when somebody cuts them off in traffic, oh, no, you don't recognize them back. They are so upset. Is this the same person? <laughs> then there's another word called, <laughs> he's going to give it to us. It's a, it's a, it's a more difficult word, so I'll I, I look it up over here. Par orgismus. Par orgismos. That is another anger that is not allowed. Okay? That is usually translated wrath. So in this very verse that we're looking at, we're going to now go back to uh, uh, Ephesians 4. Where were we? 20, whatever it was. 26. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So I'm going to answer some of these questions as we go along. And, and, And here you have it. Be angry but do not sin. We talked about that already. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This word wrath over here is the parorghismos. You're not even supposed to be mad. For these reasons, parorgismos that you're mad about, you're not, it is forbidden to be mad about that. Okay? I come home, and the food is cold. I worked all day long, <laughs> and the food is cold. How can the food be cold? Don't you know I worked all day long? Well, she says, don't you know I work all day long? <laughs> well, I worked harder than you did. Well, you're just dreaming. <laughs> I'm just making it up. So, Paul knows of our immaturity yeah. concerning our temperament our immaturity as Christians. And he gives us a deadline. He says, you have a deadline. When the sun goes down, you're done with it, baby. No more wrath, no more anger. Done. Poor guy, if you live in Alaska in the wintertime, at 3 o'clock it gets dark, so you're done at 3 (laughs) o'clock. We get to keep it till 9 o'clock at night. See, we're using all this excusing logic in our mind. That doesn't make sense. He is not saying that you have till, 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 till the sun goes down. He wants you to get rid of your anger way before. He doesn't even want you to get angry. But if you have to get angry because of your immaturity, let it go. So that answers one of my questions. Do you have control over it? If you have control over letting it go when the sun goes down, you have control over it. By the way, if you're in a spat or let's call it a fight with your wife and your best friend duck, ducks on the door and you open the front door and daddy is, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> All of a sudden, your anger is gone. All of a sudden, you're in a good mood. You see your best friend. Hey, I haven't seen you forever. Come on in, baby. Come on in. And you have the wonderful conversation. He goes out of the door and in your immaturity, you pick up the fight again. How amateur is that? I get tired just talking about it. (laughs) So don't. So you have control over it. You can control your anger. I tell you a story. Um, I told you some stories about. I have a young tennis student. She's eight years old. And. Sometimes she would, um, in times past, she would come with an attitude, and I told you about talking about the attitude, and we solved the problem on the attitude. But this particular day, uh, a friend had heard her her feelings in school, and she was upset. She was mad. And she came to the lesson upset. And uh, her mom told me, The the story. I say it's okay. I'll I'll, I'll deal with it. So when we start the lesson, I I say to her. I say to her, um, you know, I have a philosophy in my life. No one gets to steal my joy. No one gets to steal my joy. Sorry, you don't have that kind of a power over me that you get to steal my joy. You cannot tell me, okay, now, today, you're going to have a bad day. No siree, you don't have that power over me. And I told her, I say, I wish to give you some of this idea, this philosophy, that people cannot have that power over you. For you just to have a bad day, because they decided so. And then when we pick up the balls, I teach you some more. So we, we, we're teaching tennis, right? But you have to, you know, when you're out of balls, then you Right? Barbara, then you have to pick up balls and you put them back in the basket so you have a bunch of balls to to teach with. And um, while we're picking up balls, I'm I'm teaching her, coaching her. I wanted to know some secrets of life that no one can steal your joy. And I tell her, no one can steal your joy. I say, say after me, no one can steal your joy. So we're going about the lesson. So, and now all of a sudden, I mean, maybe 10 minutes into the lesson, she's a different person. Oh, an eight year old controlled her anger. And as adults, we can't? Now that's a mystery. When an eight year old can, so we're coming toward the end of the lesson, and I say, I know, sweetheart, I, I, I love my little students. I say, I know, sweetheart, that. When this is a good friend who hurts your feelings, that makes it a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? Yes, she agreed with me. I say, but this is the deal. Even a good friend can't steal your joy. And when you get over your anger and you come to your senses a little bit, let this rest a little bit, you come to a place of peace in your mind, then forgive her, would you? Because that will be to your benefit and to her benefit. And maybe a friendship can be saved. But if she's not the kind of friend that you should be friends with, that you can just say your acquaintance with and say, hey, how are you doing, and be kind and courteous and considerate to this person, but she should not be a close-tied friend with you because she's a bad influence on you or whatever, then you have to make that decision and fine. But, but forgive her. Can you do that for me, sweetheart? Give me some bones, baby. Oh, no, 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 you have to give me the wave also. <laughs> oh, that's what I do with my kids I want to teach them I want to teach them that just because somebody decides that they're going to spoil your day they can't do it you don't have that power over me sorry I got that thing that joy thing I got it from the Holy Spirit Amen. nobody gets to take it away from me so where are we <laughs> I get lost. I, I, I'll be fast, okay? Let me let me be fast. Let me be fast. Uh, so you can control it, yes. Uh, when the sun goes down, you have to let go of it. Uh, who causes the anger? Somebody says, you made me mad. That's such a fallacy. Amen. That is such so farcical stuff. <laughs> you made me mad. Oh, you made me mad. No. You did some things, and I chose to get mad about those things. Right. You can't make me mad. I decide to get mad. Don't blame it on the other person. You got mad, and then not only is it to be, are you to blame, you try to blame somebody else. That's what the flesh does. So, do you need anger treatment? <laughs> I just laugh at some of these things. Anger management. Yeah, okay. That's a nice word. We'll say treatment for you. You need some treatment. Uh, Do you need to go to anger management course? I don't think so. You can go if you want to. But I'm thinking, why don't you control it? Why don't you give it up? Way before the sun goes down. And why when somebody, when you have an affinity, when you have a a tendency to, to be fastly triggered, okay, why don't you guard yourself against it and don't get mad? There is a commercial on television. I don't know if I forget because for the most part, I shut off the sound and I change challenge when this commercial comes in. This week I told Sybil, because Sybil doesn't like the commercial either, I told her, I'm going to keep it on and listen to it. I'm going to try to control my anger. <laughs> As a good preacher, that would be a good example to, <laughs> to the people that I'm preaching to. <laughs> How does that thing go? He says, uh, there's a, a meeting about a hotel. And he says, just say, by the book, by the whatever. You, by the, you, you know the commercial? How does it go? Oh, you know it too, huh? <laughs> by the book, by the what? By the book, by the boom. I don't even know what he's saying. I heard I understood the book, but uh, boom. What is he saying? By the book, I shut that thing off so fast and changed channels. I don't want to hear it. This week, I just listened to it. Trying to control my anger. And you know what? I did just fine. I'm trying to tell you that you can control your anger. To me, To me, my dear brothers and sisters, ultimately, it is a matter of obedience that we would obey God in every way that we can and not be a bad testimony because somebody at work let us have it and you fly off the handle and you are, you know, Everybody around you gets upset and is taken aback by, oh, they thought that you were a Christian. They thought you were a dance guy. But you are a Christian. But you are a Christian that gets angry over nothing. So, yes, there are, uh, uh, there are opportunities. There are, in certain situations, you should get angry. In the case of murder, child abuse, child trafficking, get angry enough to do something about it. But don't sin because of your anger. The other kinds of anger are disallowed by the scriptures. I'm, 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 I'm just going to read you. Can I, I'm just going to reach you. I have to do it because that way I can get off my chest and, and I'm done with it. Here, Here, here is a, a verses about anger, and i just give you a few. Okay? Just for your information to know that there's a bunch of scriptures, not just the ones that I showed you, just a bunch of scriptures that have to do that, that say be slow to anger, control it, Give it up or, or whatever. And so, I give, I don't, I'm i not even reading you all of them. I just circled a few with red. So I, 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 I. There, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And then sometimes you, you usually miss the second part of it. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. This is not a gift of the Spirit. Anger. (laughs) Uh, That is found in James 1, 19 and 20. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger rested in the bosom of fools. I'm not calling you a fool because you get angry. I'm like Peter, I'm trying to encourage you, and Paul, I'm trying to encourage you, hey, control that anger. There's something that you can do about it, then do it. He that is soon angry, dealeth foolishly. The wrathful man stirrup up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a, a, get a snare to thy soul. Here, we talked about that verse of, in, in Peter over there. You have that kind of a fellowship with people that are always getting angry. That happened to me. As a youth, I got angry as a tennis player. I was the number one player in my country. I told you this before. 80-plus a, a, a man, old man, what, walks up to me, to the fans of the coach, and he says, a real champion is a good example for the younger players. Don't act like that. End of story. I, that was good for years for me. Then I went to Holland and played in Holland. And the guys in Holland, they, they just broke records. They got upset. They, they you know acted like... Like, what? I I, I love the guys. They're friends of mine, but they they didn't act right. And I played a tournament in Amsterdam. A close friend of mine came to watch me. I acted like a fool. He waited for me to walk with me after the match to the locker room, and he says, Kenny, man, I, I, I don't recognize you. That's not a Kenny that I know. Hey, you're a sportsman. Enough said, my friend. I took it, and for years, that was good. Let's be teachable. But I was in that company of of, of people that were getting mad. Uh, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. That is uh, Psalms 37, 8. Okay, okay, okay. He put them on there. Which one do you have there? Do not fret. Okay. I have now uh, Proverbs 16, 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit, than he that taketh a city. So you're a mighty man, but you're greater than a mighty man when you, rule, when you control your anger. And if you control your anger and you don't get mad, you are greater than somebody that can conquer a city. Uh, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Yes, you provoke your children to anger, it will discourage them. The discretion of a man deferred his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. In other words, somebody did something against you, instead of getting mad, hey, there is a glory that God wants to raise in you by overlooking that transgression. Uh, It is better to dwell in the wilderness. Oh, I shouldn't tell that. I Don't say this one. Uh, that that one slipped. That one slipped through the cracks, a little bit. <laughs> it is better to dwell in the wilderness than to than with a contentious and angry angry woman. So, huh? Well, yeah, that's right. It is his fault after all. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yes, but but it's not like this is just for women. It's the same thing. Who wants to live with a, an angry man? He, 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 he was just describing a situation here with women, but it's not just for women. Uh, I'll give, give you one more. Someone says, praise the Lord. Uh, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So, because he knows that when we get angry, there is stuff that comes out of our mouth that is not befitting a Christian. Amen. What some people tell me that they say to their spouse, that is a spouse, so I, can think, I think to myself, what if it's not a spouse? What do they say? <laughs> you know, I, I'm telling you, uh, if I hadn't, not, I'm 71 years old, so I've been around the mountain a few times. If I had not been around the mountain these many times, as dark-skinned as, as I am, uh, I would have blushed. From the words that these people were speaking, husband to wife and wife to husband. So because of their anger, they, these, these words came out. But so there's something about controlling your anger that is such a, a glorious thing for a Christian. And I want to encourage you. We're not done yet because I, next week, hopefully, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the, the talking. And what do we get angry about? Oh, let me just mention a few. What do you get angry about? That the food is cold when you come home? That, huh? Dishes in the sink? Do you get angry because the house is not clean? Do you get angry because what? Uh, uh, somebody borrowed your car, and when they brought it back, it was on zero gasoline. <laughs> hey, just go put some gasoline in the car. <laughs> okay. Well, I told him he can borrow the car, but he better fill it up. No, no, you didn't tell him to fill it up. They, they were a little bit considered bit but maybe they didn't have the money to do it. So, I mean, you know, they should explain to you, but anyways. Why, what do we get angry about? Huh? Watch, watching what? Uh, watching a cooking show. <laughs> you, may not, you may not like the cooking show, but why do you get angry? <laughs> anyways. Enough of that. Enough of that. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, something called disputable matters. Disputable matters. That is a, a very tricky Christian subject. Disputable matters. Those are situations that are not commanded in Scripture and not forbidden in Scripture. But that some people have convictions about. We're we going to talk about those type of things from the Scriptures. It is actually, if you want to read First Corinthians the 8th chapter, we, we're going to work out of that that, that that first time. We probably have a couple of sessions in disputable matters, and they're mostly dealt with in 1 Corinthians the 8th, nine, and 10th chapter, and Romans the 14th and 15th chapter. If you want to read there, you get a good glimpse of what we're going to talk about. But if, if that's too much to read, just go First Corinthians the 8th chapter, and then you, you, you get a good idea of what we'll be talking about and have a better understanding of what Will be saying about it. So let us stand. Let us stand.